All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Brandon from Real Life Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky, Ark Planter, and it is an honor and a privilege to welcome you to Why Some Teams Win and Most Don't, don't for Mr. Larry Osborne. Y'all give him a big hand as he comes up this evening. Am I okay to be down here instead of, I'd rather be down here. Okay, hey, it's great to be with you, and uh, we haven't got lots of time, especially if we want to have some Q&A at the end of this, so uh, let me kind of dig uh, right into it. We're going to talk about why some teams win and most don't, and uh, I'm going to step back uh, a, a stage before what Pastor Chris talked about last night. It was such an awesome message on how to, you know, speak uh, to those that we have, but I want to step back that, uh, step before that in terms of how do we pick the right people? Uh, because if truth be told, you can do all of the right things as a leader and a, a father figure and a pastor in the lives of a staff. But if you have the wrong players on your team, uh, all you're going to do is make bad a little bit better. Would you agree? Uh, you know, because you, 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 you bring out of people what God has already put in them. Uh, we do not have the opportunity to put into people what God didn't put there. And so when it comes to building a team, there are some pretty universal principles. And the principles that I'm going to talk about today are ones that uh, will work for you if you're working with volunteers and you're trying to build a team. Let's say you're trying to build a board, they would work. You're trying to build a staff. Uh, they are principles that work for, for me when I was pastoring a church of a few hundred, uh, uh, pastoring a church now, 12, 13,000, really these core principles have never, ever changed. So uh, that's what I'm really looking for. So you don't need to even ask questions like, will that work here or that work uh, there? They're, these are the universals uh, that fit in pretty much every context. And I'm going to do it uh, in this uh, little metaphor of uh, uh, winning teams do this, losing teams do that. Now, before I get into what a winning and losing team does different, one of the things I want to point out is that the major difference between winning teams and losing teams is not winning teams have gifted players and losing teams have bad players. It's winning teams have winning players and losing teams have gifted players. Uh, any of you that like sports know that an all-star team is seldom able to defeat a real team if they play. Uh, let's just pick basketball, the game I like the most and played a little bit of. There's only one ball, you know, and so uh, you might have the four or five best centers in NBA history and you can't win. Uh, you might have the best uh, uh, guards in NBA history and you can't win. Uh, what it takes is winning players, not just gifted players. And one of the mistakes we often make is we're looking around and so dialed into the needs we have that we put people into slots because they're the best available, but they're the wrong person. Uh, let me use not a, a people illustration, but a, a decision illustration to show how this works. Uh, when my wife and I moved to uh, northern San Diego, Oceanside, uh, many, many years ago, uh, what happened is a realtor was showing us a bunch of homes because we had previously been privileged to somehow figure out a way to buy a home when I was a youth pastor up in L.A. And so we had a little equity, <laughs> like some of you when you moved different parts of the country, we thought they were giving homes away uh, at the price in San Diego compared to what L.A. was. And uh, what the realtor did is he showed me about 10 or 15 homes. And uh, he was very frustrated because at the end of the day, I said, nope, nope. Then he showed me 10 or 15 more. Nope, nope. We got up to about 100 homes, and he was ready to kill me. 
But the thing was, my wife and I had had a, a list of dreams that we felt maybe the Lord had given us. And you're not always sure until you see in the rearview mirror, was that last night's pizza or the Lord? Uh, but uh, we had a dream for a career, for a little bit of writing that I might someday do. We had a dream of spending our whole life in one community and just seeing what God would do. And I also had a dream for the house we would have and how it would be used for entertaining and hosting people and all of this. And because I had had it spelled out, every home he showed me was compared to the dream. You catch that? Where he was used to showing people 10 homes, and they compared the 10 against the 10, and they picked the best. So if you don't start with a dream of what it is you're trying to produce, if you don't have in your head this sense of this is what the end goal is, you're always going to pick the best of the lot. And sometimes it's far better to live in an apartment a little bit longer. We lived with her nana. Uh, that's, that's one, that, I think that was, it wasn't hell, it was purgatory. <laughs> and we did it a little bit longer because we knew what we were looking for. So before I even get in these traits, I want to encourage you that it's better to have a void than the wrong person in a slot. Volunteer, board, staff, whatever it is. Because once they're there, the pain of removing them is much, much greater than the pain of having that void. Does that make sense? Okay, so the first thing here in terms of what winning teams and losing teams do is that winning teams have, as I said, winning players have losing players, and it's in a couple of characteristics. I'm going to give you the difference between a winner and a loser. And ironically, I did not learn this from Scripture. I learned it from a uh, secular book blew my mind, and then suddenly I realized that secular book was pointing out what Scripture had always said and I'd never seen. Uh, it was a book uh, that took 30 years of study of uh, American, Canadian, and uh, European businesses. And it asked this question of those who are fast-tracked. And if you know what fast-tracking is in a corporate setting, you take people who you think have a great future, your superstars, top graduates from a prestigious MBA program, whatever, and you put them on a fast-track. You give them special mentoring, special opportunity. And by the way, you only do this to people you think are going to be winners. Nobody says, let's take a loser and put them on the fast track and see what happens, right? So by definition, these are all people that they thought were A players. And then they asked this question in this 30-year study, what were the common characteristics of those who got derailed and the common characteristics of those who rose to the top? And I think they had 14 on each side, but it was the first two derailment factors and the first two success factors that blew my mind. So let me give you the first two derailment factors, the most common characteristics of A players who were put on the fast track and in all three cultures somehow got derailed. The number one derailment factor was poor people skills. They didn't play well in the sandbox. They were brilliant, they were very, very gifted, but when it came to people skills, they had poor people skills. Now, in many cases, they rose up for a while until the, those poor people skills bit them in the butt, but eventually they got derailed. They said, what is the most common characteristics of all of these people over here? Poor people skills. Didn't play well in the sandbox. The second most common characteristic of uh, those who got derailed was a lack of flexibility. They were inflexible. <coughs> They were wonderful as long as everything followed the syllabus. 
Okay, uh, and I, I had a, uh, one of my sons uh, is uh, kind of a brain on a stick and did very, very well in school, uh, did an, an incredibly well in a master's program at a prestigious school, and then it was time to get his first like real job in the marketplace uh, after that degree. He'd had a real job before that, so he got into it, but <clears throat> I, I, I remember sitting down with him and saying something along these lines, everything you've ever done, you've succeeded at greatly so far, but everything you've ever done has been following somebody's syllabus. They gave you a track to run on, and you ran on it very well and better than everybody else. Here's what you're going to find in the real business world. Two weeks after you get hired, everything they hired you for, you won't be doing. Right? Any marketplace people know that? Right? And is the church any different? No. Okay? And so what they discovered is very gifted people who had a long, great track record or maybe rose up in mental management quickly, they finally came to a place where flexibility was very important and they got derailed. Well, when I read that, I stopped and thought, and I realized I'd been in ministry about 10, 12 years at that point, and I realized every person who had disappointed me as a key volunteer, a board member, or a staff member, Every single person, it was one of those two things. And help me out. Think for a moment. Is that not true? When you look back, who are the people you thought were going to be, thank you, Jesus, for these folks? And they derailed. I bet it was one of those two things. So you can go home now. You know exactly who not to hire or put in a position, <laughs> right? Okay. Would you like to know the top two success factors, though, since you want good people? Okay. I'll give them to you. The number one success factor was flexibility. <laughs> and does anybody have a clue what number two was? People skills. So I have learned whenever I'm looking at somebody for any role to stop and honestly ch uh, trust my gut and that first impression, because it usually doesn't lie in those two areas, not to ask, is this person gifted? Not even to ask, is this person passionate about their walk with God? But do they play well in the sandbox? Because I have seen plenty of people who are incredibly passionate in their pursuit of the Lord, but they think they're on a track team where all it is is about your own personal performance. They don't realize they're on a basketball or football team where we got to work on this together. So even spiritual maturity is not the key there in terms of the intimacy of their own walk with God. And, and then as I reflected on it more, I realized, oh, Larry, that's, Scripture says this anyway. People skills. What if I can speak of the, uh, in, in the tongues of men and angels and understand all biblical mysteries and have faith that can move mountains and take every penny of my paycheck and give it away to the poor and I die as a bold Jesus-honoring martyr, but I do not have agape love, what have I lost? Everything, right? First Corinthians 13. That, and what is agape love? Long-suffering. Not remembering wrongs. Not being in the, All of those basically play well in the sandbox verses. Or I even think of the church at Ephesus, which many of us have kind of been, that passage has been twisted around. You know, that's, uh, if you're old enough, you might uh, think of that church as the Righteous Brothers Church, the one that lost that loving feeling. And, and, and we, we, we look at Revelation 2, oh, you've lost your first love. But you know what Greek word is actually used in that passage? Agape. He didn't say you lost your passion for me. 
you lost your agape for one another and for others. In fact, if you read the church in Ephesus, it is incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, dedicated. Uh, and they keep on when everybody else quits. They, they, their doctrine was solid. They wouldn't put up with false You go, this is the kind of church you get in a plane to go visit. And the Lord says, I don't care how cool you are or what Outreach 100 says about you. What I care about is you no longer loving one another. You're probably fighting about all kinds of preferences within, and you've probably lost your love for lost people as well, agape love. Those are the first two things to find out. By the way, the, the one on flexibility, the Apostle Paul, when he was defending his ministry, what did he say? First Corinthians chapter 9, all things for all people that I might reach some. The ultimate flexibility. He said, when, uh, when I'm with Jews, I go kosher. When I'm with the Gentiles, I have a BLT. <laughs> right? That's what he said. And, of course, he got criticized for that because they saw him as hypocritical. And he says, I'm not hypocritical. I'm loving, and I have a missions mindset. All things to all people that I might reach some. Anything short of sin, I'm in. So as you build your teams, this is one of the most important things to look at and, and it is amazing to me how seldom that is ever on our list. Uh, because our church has a reputation for being healthy, and uh, particularly healthy in terms of, of family relationships and staff, I get lots of people who are looking for somebody on their staff, and they'll, they'll send me a, uh, uh, an email or text and say, hey, do you know anybody? Is there somebody ready to uh, step out, say, from an intern role or lower staff role? Uh, we're looking for somebody because we love the kind of staff you have. And I always send the same response back. Yeah, I'd love to help. Uh, maybe know some other churches, too, where I speak and do stuff. Uh, just send me uh, your job description. You know, what is it you're looking for? And then I almost always send them back the same text and email. I'm sorry, you want a staff like ours, but most of our staff can't cut it by your job description. Because think about what we usually have as the top of our job description. Education and experience. I've not seen one yet that said anointing. And I've not ever seen one that said good people skills and highly flexible. And when I'm putting a team together, I, I don't care you know, what degrees they have. I care what anointing they have. And then when I get really practical with it, I don't even want high anointing because high anointing can come sometimes with poor people skills or a rigidity. I mean, have you ever noticed sometimes the more we know the Bible, the less flexible we become. It's not the Bible's fault. It's, of course, our, our sin nature. So uh, winning players will have those two traits always. And if you get players on your team who are really gifted, but they don't play well in the sandbox, it eventually will create a problem. And if they're inflexible, they might love you today, but I guarantee you they're going to hate you later. Okay? So that's number one. Uh, the, the second trait uh, about winning teams and losing teams is this. Winning teams guard the gate. A winning team guards the gate, but a losing team lets anybody in. And it sounds Jesus-like to let anybody in. I mean, one of the things I so love about the ark is, is the ability to believe in a dream and uh, uh, support uh, things and just see what God is going to do. 
So when I say let anybody in, I'm not talking about hyper-assessment to the degree that you know everything will succeed. I always like to say if you're hyper-risk adverse, you're also success adverse, okay? But having said that, you need to guard the gate because once they get in the pen, it's hard to get them out. And I can't tell you how many pastors I've talked to over the years who uh, are asking me to help them or consult them on what do they do with problem lay leaders, problem board members, or problem staff members. And I always want to say the same thing. I wish you would have talked to me before you put them in that position. Okay? Guarding the gate is, is Jesus-like. You know, he didn't have, oh, anybody want to be an apostle? Just sign up. Okay? He handpicked them. And even among that group, he handpicked three of them. And some of his followers, you know, we often say this little phrase, <clears throat> like, oh, at the end of his ministry, there were only 120, you know, you've kind of heard that drill, and then it explodes. Well, there were more than 120. There were 120 of his closest entourage in Jerusalem. There were Jesus followers spread around all over. You know, families that came to Jesus weren't able to, like the teenage uh, uh, apostles, you know, who were young men, single, following him. They, they weren't able to just pick up their family and, and follow. There were lots of people, and yet they weren't the people to go. There were some who said, can I go with you? And he said, no. you got to guard the gate. Now, when it comes to guard the gate, I'm going to give you some sub-things to keep in mind because these are the things you're looking out uh, for as opposed to just the first two I, I gave you. Number one, never ignore a lack of character because of an abundance of giftedness. I would always have less, prefer to have less giftedness and more character. But in church circles, it is so easy for us to get enamored by giftedness. And to think, well, maybe I can help them grow in that character. But the problem is when you're building a team, again, lay leaders, board, uh, or, or, or staff, when you're building a team, past is prologue. You know, it, what they've been is probably what they're going to be. And I, I want to speak in, like we've talked about, to those that are already there and see what God has for them. But I don't want to bring them onto my team. There's a very big difference between being in our crowd and being on the team. Okay. And um, there are, in particular, really, there's three areas where you're going to be most tempted uh, to ignore character. Uh, one is youth ministries, and I'm doing them in inverse order, youth ministries. The second area where we tend to do it is in worship, right? Have any of you ever met a prickly worship leader? Okay, and I'm not painting with a broad brush that all are, but I'm saying I'm amazed how many times we go, well, a little bit of a prima donna or this or that, or they don't get along with everybody, but oh, they just bring us before the presence of the Lord. I'm not so sure they're bringing it before the presence of the Lord as, as much as just the, uh, the, the, the music is powerful. And then the other one is preachers. If you're good on stage and you can really bring it, it's amazing to me how we overlook significant character flaws. And you can't build a long-term winning team with people with character flaws. Okay? Significance. We all have flaws. I'm thinking of like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he says, if anybody wants to be a presbyteros, an overseer, or an elder, 
uh, the, he goes through the trace. He does the same for Titus. And the first number one thing is above reproach, which in modern day language you might translate as no glaring weakness. That's a phrase we use at our, our, our church. When we put together people on a team, we send out actually at our size still today with all our campuses and all we've got, it's called a red flag email. I probably have seven of them on my phone right now. And uh, they will be so-and-so wants to work in any area of ministry or obviously be hired or uh, a board type position. It goes to all staff, all elders, and it simply says, Larry Osborne wants to work, you know, in the... T- parking ministry or whatever it would be, and the subject is red flag, and here's what we're asking for. Does anybody out there know a big yeah but about that person? They're really good, but, okay? We're not looking for all the little tiny things in everybody's life because we are all sinners saved by grace, and we are a hospital, you know, not a fitness club at our church. But if you're going to join the team, I don't want some glaring weakness, because eventually that will come and get us. And you've all seen those churches that just rise to the top, and for a while they have so much momentum, and God seems to be doing such cool things, and then they just blow up. Well, they blow up for the derailment reasons we were just talking about, or they built a team of gifted people, but they didn't guard the gate uh, in in that area. Uh, Another one is never ignore... um, Um, a a lack of people skills because of an abundance of Bible knowledge. A a lack of people skills because of an abundance of Bible knowledge. We live in a strange day and age, and, you know, I I look forward to asking Jesus, is this good or bad? I I, I don't really know. But uh, the Western European influence on American culture, in American culture, causes us to self-appoint ourselves to ministry. Have you noticed that? We, we, we say, I'm called into ministry, which is really, I, I don't know, it, it, it's not found in the Bible. I don't know if it's bad or good. I just know it's weird because in the Bible, the church recognized something in you and they called you into ministry. But today we have people who feel called and uh, they'll spend a lot of time online studying the Bible or they'll go get a Bible degree or whatever and they'll have lots of information and because they've worked so hard to get that into their head, we sometimes feel like we have to give them an opportunity even though everything in us knows there is no way they could lead their way out of a paper bag, right? And if you need to guard the gate because you're never you're never doing the kingdom or a person good when you put them in a place where you know they will fail. Okay? That's, it is not Jesus-like to say, you want to do this, we know you will fail, so we're going to let you do it to prove it to. Okay? That's not Jesus. We think it is. Well, they worked so hard. They tried so hard. Uh, for us, one of the areas, like, like I said, this applies to all areas of building a team. North Coast Church happens to be built around uh, small groups, a lecture lab model where we take the weekend message and dig deeper. We, uh, we've never had less than 80%. The last 10 years or so, we have over 90% of our weekend adult attendance numbers are not signed up for these groups, but in these groups. So small groups are very important to us. It's a leadership role, and we need lots of them. And one of the things I'm always having to make sure we uh, watch with our little red flag th- uh, thing and, and, and the staff that heads it up on our campuses is that we don't give self-appointed people who we know we would not want to be in their group the opportunity to lead a group, right? Because, have you ever had somebody, a group's going out to lunch and the whole way there you're praying to Jesus, they don't sit next to you? 
You know what I mean? They have breath that can kill a buzzard. You know, they talk too close to you. I mean, they have these things that just make you incredibly uncomfortable. When you give them, which we do over and over, when you give them a ministry opportunity that people skill they're not ready for, you're not only hurting them, but do you realize what you just did to all the people that were in that group? Okay? So if I decide the loving thing to do is give them a chance, well, what about the 14 other people who will never be in another group because they got in a weirdo group? You build a healthy team by making the hard decisions of guarding the gate. A little sidebar on this is when you guard the gate, another one you want to guard the gate against is anybody who's a Christian pit bull or watchdog for Jesus. Okay? There are some people out there who have not got the memo that baby Jesus no longer needs a security squad. He's King Jesus. Right? Have you ever met any of those people? They're, they're really angry at, at the world out there, or the sinners out there, or whatever, or, or theologically. I call them Christian pit bulls, Christian Rottweilers, and they, they bark and they growl at all the bad guys. And, and one of the things that happens in, in, in our circles is, is that we can look at them and we can admire their courage and their boldness. Man, yeah, that's bold. So we lift them up. Uh, but here's the problem. If they bark and bite at all the bad guys, and you agree, yeah, those are the bad guys, and you're, you know, kind of see them as your little watchdog, here's what you need to understand. The moment you do something they don't like, they're going to bark and bite at you, okay? Because they're not barking and biting at bad guys, they're barking and biting because that's what they were bred to do. And so one of our, our principles, and, and it's kind of a funny thing because in so many churches, they come to, they rise up so quickly. So uh, uh, the other teaching pastor at our church, Chris Brown, not that Chris Brown, a different one. Uh, they, when I teach or Chris teaches, they'll come up to us afterward and very quickly in the conversation, they'll let us know not only that they're into apologetics, which is a wonderful thing, I'm glad, but they're kind of the angry apologetics. You know, the one who draws a line in the sand, good guy, bad guy, I like to call name names and all of this. Or, or they come out and they tell us about some ministry they're involved in, but they're just a hyper dog for that ministry, uh, you know, kind of one area of focus. And, and they have no idea that what they just did in our mind was cause us to go like this. We don't tell them that. We go, oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then write down their name real quick. And, and thank you, Lord, because usually within six months they've left and their comment is, I just couldn't break in there. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because I'm going to go let you chew up somebody else and some other church. Uh, it's the same person who comes to you and ever tells you the story of how bad the previous church was. Okay? Because uh, if you're just listening, you know, Proverbs says the first to tell a story makes sense until you're the other side. And I can't tell you as a young pastor how many times I bought the story of somebody in this terrible, dysfunctional church, or they were on a staff, and this pastor, you know, was uh, Tilla the Hun, and uh, like, oh man, that's so bad, and glad you're here, and, and then next thing I knew, that's not how it was, okay? Somebody who overcomplains and is overcritical about them is over, going to overcomplain and be overcritical about you. 
Somebody who's biting and barking at all of the trespassers over here is going to bark and bite when they are surprised by something that you do. You got to guard the gate to have a winning team. Now, here's a third one. Um, winning teams make unity a priority. And by unity, I don't mean uniformity. Everybody agrees on everything. I mean unity, the sense of group cohesiveness, kind of getting along, liking one another. But here's the thing. They make it a priority. Here's what losing teams do. They make it an afterthought. This is one of the biggest mistakes I made in my early years at North Coast Church. I figured that life was too short and hell was too hot to waste time building community among our staff. We need to be out on mission. And I figured that anybody who really loved Jesus would grab a squirt gun and charge hell with me. And we would all just kind of sing kumbaya because we had the same mission to honor King Jesus and to expand the kingdom. And I couldn't have been more naive and more biblically incorrect. I, I don't know what biblical translation you are using personally, but my bet is page three in your Bible says the same thing mine does. And that is, things are all screwed up, right? And if I had paid a little more attention to what the Bible says about sin nature, and by the way, the way the Bible illustrates it as the first illustration of sin nature is one brother killing another brother, I might have made unity a priority rather than thinking it'll just take care of itself. And I bet there's a good number of you right now who are so into, man, I want to be on prayer, I want to be on mission, I want to be on task. We don't have time to just goof off and play together. I want to tell you, if you don't goof off and play together and learn to like one another, you will not have a long-term team. And if you're having constant turnover in your team, it's hard to make a huge impact in any community. And you have to work at it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, make every effort, a Greek word for toiling at the extreme, to preserve unity. Once, once something gets off the ground, when you're first planting that first little time, you know, you are also trying to survive, you'll be bonded. But over time, as you get a little bit of power, a little bit of prestige, a little bit of preference, here's what you'll discover. Nobody wants to lose power, prestige, or preference when it's time to do it for the kingdom, to move to another seat on the bus, whatever. And if you haven't developed friendships, you won't be able to handle crisis. I want to tell you a story about uh, our board in this area. And again, I, I made the mistake early on of, of not paying attention to it. Also, by the way, I didn't... I, not only Genesis 3, I didn't read Acts 16. Would you all agree with, with me the Apostle Paul's like a pretty spiritual guy? Right? And Barnabas? But they had such a church fight, they went in different directions. Okay? But here's the story. Um, by, the, by, by, by God's kindness, we, we have only had uh, two moral failures. One, an a, a intern-level youth ministry thing, and then one, a pastor in the 37 years I've been at North Coast. Uh, and that failure didn't come till about year 25 or so. And if any of you have read any of my stuff on sticky teams or building teams, you know I talk about doing some things to build closeness, and I'd done that. Uh, but it was that day I understood the importance of it. Because here's what happens when there's a moral failure 
or a great difficulty like that. I was unaware of it at the time. Everybody moves to one of two camps. On one camp, it's the family side. Hey, everybody's watching how we treat one another. If we shoot our wounded, it looks really bad. And so, you know, we need to take care of this guy, his family, make sure his kids have a college scholarship and God, you know, whatever it is, just take care because we're family. The other side is the justice group. And they say, he ought to be lucky his name's not Aiken. And he's been robbing us for this period of time. In the unseen realm, he's been giving the enemy an incredible foothold. We should castrate the guy, okay? Now, you can see these two groups don't get along very well, right? And you didn't even know the difference, the divide was there until the issue came up. And so in your ministry, what happens is, yeah, you can handle little whitewater all the time, but eventually real problems with complex answers that aren't easily solved are going to come up. And that's when we divide. Paul and Barnabas got along great until it was time to decide whether they took John Mark or left him behind on the next mission trip. And that meeting, our boards are, have been really healthy and all that. That meeting was hellacious. I remember there at one point getting so angry because I literally thought this division on our leadership team, and by, by the way, also between me and the other lead uh, teaching pastor at that time, we were on different sides. I thought it was going to split our church. Things were said in the heat of that moment that were like, "Woo, that was not very nice. The kind of stuff you have brain debates on for three weeks, you know, you're taking a shower and you're arguing back. Those, I mean... <laughs> Instead of saying, well, I see it differently, it was like, no, those were not the words that were used. And then somebody remembered we had a constitution or bylaws somewhere, and they found it, and it gave us some simple answer. So none of us agreed on anything. We just said, yeah, we're going to cut the baby in half, do what the bylaws said, and we went home. And I laid awake all night just wondering about the future because at the highest level, the schism was there. We had another meeting about two weeks later. And you would think nothing happened. And that's when I realized the power of working on unity. Because we were like a couple of brothers that get in a fist fight in the backyard, bloody somebody's nose, and two hours or later saying, you want to play catch? See, if you've built unity in your team, it doesn't mean you're always going to be unified. If you build unity in your team, it doesn't mean you're not going to be really angry. It doesn't mean you're not going to see different lines in the sand that should be drawn and all that. But if you've built unity in the team, you will be able to weather that. But if you haven't followed Scripture's exhortation to make every effort, you will. So I want to ask you these questions, or team. Are you making time to play together? I mean... People draw together when they spend time together, okay? You, you, you got to play together. You got you to figure out, do meals together when a, a team is smaller, whatever it would be. But make sure it's not something you're assuming is going to happen. It actually is on your calendar just as much as anything else that is very important. Because winning teams have a great locker room, and that's why they can play together for a long period of time. Number four, winning teams focus on their mission. Losing teams focus on their successes. 
And it's not long until they're staffed for success instead of staffed for mission. Let me show you what I mean by that. It's called mission creep. So uh, uh, imagine right now that I've got a bow and arrow, and, and I'm shooting it for the red word together over there. And uh, what I'm aiming for is uh, uh, the R at the end of it. So I shoot my first arrow, and instead of hitting here at the R, uh, it hits the R in arc. Pretty bad miss, right? So I shoot it again, and guess what? It splits the arrow on the R at arc. I grab a third one, it splits the arrow on the R at arc. Well, I simply grab my bullseye, and I move it over here to where all the arrows are landing. And you don't think we do that? We do that all day long. Because we tend to account, account attendance, not disciples. Right? Uh, and I, I don't mean this to be ragging on the, the seeker movement. God has used it quite well. I'm just going to use some different illustrations. But like the seeker movement, when it first started, said Sunday is all about lost people, and the church meets midweek. And though that wasn't my style or my, my form, I'm for anything that Jesus wants to use. And, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But here was the thing. After a while, everybody showed up at big old gatherings on Sundays. Nobody showed up midweek, so they just redefined it. I go, well, 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 well you can't do that. Or uh, I was uh, um, a youth pastor at a, a, a very large uh, Baptist church uh, at this point. It was actually second largest in the country. A group of people called Converge now. It used to be Baptist, if you maybe heard of them. And uh, what we had is, is, is we provided the holiday entertainment. So we had amazing uh, uh, Holy Week stuff and Christmas Eve. It was just off the charts. In fact, Christmas Eve was so good, we had to move it to... Uh, multiple services. Then we had to ticket them. Then we had to move it to multiple days. Then you have to move it week. You, you know that drill, okay? And I have friends who do that. But here's, here's, here was my question. Uh, I said, why are we doing this? Because frankly, I hated it. I, I wanted to be with my family, okay? I didn't want to be at church. Maybe I'm going to hell. I don't know. But <laughs> I, you know, I seem good to me in the spirit. Uh, and, and so what happened is uh, I didn't want to do all that stuff, so I raised my hand and say, well, why are we doing this and spending this money? And then they told me, oh, it's because people in the community will come to our church on Christmas Eve. They'll feel comfortable with it. And then when they have something in their life, we'll have the chance to minister to them. Now I'm about 23 years old. I go, oh, my gosh, I never heard that. That's amazing. I'm sorry. That's brilliant. But then being Larry, I couldn't shut up. And I said, well, I do have one more question. Does it ever happen? And they said, well, of course. And I wasn't born with a filter. So I said, like who? And with some deep thought, they named three or four families. And I said, well, if you'll give me one-tenth of the budget we spent on Christmas Eve, I promise you I will see ten times that number of people every single year come to Jesus Christ in the youth group, the college group, all that lifetime changes, not just nods to God. Now, here was a problem. They started with a ministry they did so they could reach lost people. It wasn't working but more people were coming every year. 
So they just moved the bullseye. Now, I know some churches that do the holiday entertainment marvelously, and they do it for that reason, and they can point to me the people. In other words, they're still on mission. This is not saying you shouldn't do holiday entertainment in your church. It's saying if you want to build a winning team, you will know what winning looks like. You won't simply change the scorecard so that attendance is equal to mission. Does that make sense what I'm saying? You know, like in our town, uh, Vacation Bible School. You guys familiar with that? Okay. You know, so all the churches but North Coast Church do Vacation Bible School, and they all get excited that every year it gets bigger and bigger. Well, the only reason it gets bigger and bigger is because every homeschool family and every Christian family gets a schedule of where they are, and all summer gets free babysitting, (laughs) which is why we don't do it anymore. Okay? Now... If that's what they're doing, they want to say they want to give mom some time off, bingo, good for it. But if they're telling me they're doing this so they can have a closing meeting where parents will come and they share the gospel, people come to Jesus, and nobody does, I don't care you had 50 more families than last year. If you're going to be a winning team, your entire team has to know what winning is. And I happen to believe it needs to line up with Scripture not line up with where all the numbers are. By the way, the most classic example of that would be an organization we all know of as the YMCA. What's that stand for? Young Men's Christian Association. Its goal was to reach young men for Jesus through urban housing and athletics. It wasn't very good at that after a while, but it was really good at teaching young girls gymnastics and having pools for exercise. Now, I'm glad for the YMCA. Half my staff exercises there. They taught my daughter gymnastics at a really cheap price. They finally fessed up, and they just called themselves the Y now, right? And I don't have any problem with the YMCA doing that, but the church can't do that. Okay, parachurch, well, I, don't, I don't care if your justice mission becomes just pure justice, whatever, but we can't change our great commission. Number five, winning teams focus on empowerment. Losing teams focus on excellence and tenure. This is how you will have a winning team for a period that suddenly the dynasty is over. Because winning teams always have a farm system, and winning teams allow people to rise up, whereas losing teams become so enamored with excellence, nobody can rise up because nobody is quite there yet. If I could use a sports illustration, the teams that have a dynasty in the sporting world are not always the teams that keep the best player at every position because they begin to realize this person has a future better than our current third baseman. They're not as good today, but they have a future, so we're going to give them an opportunity. Now, I'm not saying you give opportunities to people who are... uh, You know, I call it the cringe factor, okay? Hey, go ahead and preach. Everybody cringes. Go ahead and sing. The babies cry. That's not what I'm talking about. But if in your ministry, you're only letting the very best do anything up front, you are slowly beginning to die. 
I talked to one well-known church that we were working with to help them figure out how to do video venues and multi-site and all of that. And, and they talked about their brand and, and how important it was. And I said, you got thousands and thousands of people. What do you mean when it comes to some of these things, you can't raise up other people? And they go, our brand, our people expect excellence. And I said, I saw some tapes of when your church started, they sucked. Jesus did pretty good with it. What happens is when you raise a bar of excellence higher and higher and higher, it's not long until you only hire from outside. And when it comes to worship and this stuff, you only have casting calls. And, and excellence is okay. I never want to be below the cringe factor. But I don't want my artists to decide what's good enough. I want my people to decide what's good enough. Because when it comes to excellence and empowerment, they will always be somewhat at odds. And only one of them is biblical. Now, this room is full of young eagles. But you better start thinking right now about this. Because if you only start thinking of it later, you'll have a problem. And that is there always has to be room at the table for young eagles. And what happens is you get older, the freshmen get smaller. And one of the things I see in losing teams is they don't have an opportunity for people who aren't quite gifted enough yet or, oh, they're too young or whatever it would be. I was the lead pastor at North Coast Church at 28 years old. And yet when I was uh, late 40s, we were adding somebody on a staff position and they said this person was too young and it was like 34. I go, you realize in one more year he could be president of the United States. Right? He is not too young. We are too old. Dynamic dynasties have a pipeline. And rookies make mistakes. You got to have both of them. You have a dynamic pipeline and you're not so afraid of mistakes that you don't let anybody in. Again, you got to go back to guarding the gate. Anybody who wants to sing can't sing. But you've got to see what people can become, and you have to have other opportunities. And, and I said excellence. The other one was tenure. Uh, does, you all know what I, I, I mean when, when you go on a road trip, somebody calls shotgun, right? Okay. That means you get a set where? Front seat, how long? Till the next stop or trip, right? Well, do you know churches play shotgun? But in, in churches, what happens, when you call shotgun, you're there till you die. <laughs> and it's the death knell of churches when excellence and tenure, the first to sit here instead of who should sit here, determines what's going on. And especially I want to talk to you that are on the front end of your churches, because if you start with these changes now, it will not be a crisis when you try to make the changes later. Okay? Uh, I was, I left a church where they, they were shocked that I left. Uh, I was uh, that youth pastor thing. I was 24. I got to be the second preacher at 24 years old in this massive church. They, they brought me into decisions, talked to me. They paid me well, all kinds of things. And so they were so blown away 
when I said I'm leaving and going down to a group of 70 adults, so I didn't plant North Coast, it was a church plant about a year and a half old, 70 adults meeting in a school, my office is going to be a parishioner's garage, and can I take this desk out of the trash and take it down? And by the way, I'm taking a 30 or 40% pay cut. They thought like, what drugs you've been taking, boy? But it was really simple to be. I knew they were giving me lots of platforms, but there was a leadership door over there. And I knew I was never going to get through that door for about 20 years. So I didn't want to fly in their gilded cage. I wanted to fly. And your church, start now. It was one of the best gifts to me to have that as a reason I left. It caused me to, from the beginning, have my eyes opened that every year the freshman gets smaller. And I would go from being cool to cheesy like overnight. And to make sure they get in that door, not just they get to do ministry. Okay, Because we have so many young eagles in our churches that fly somewhere else, not because Jesus called them, but because we kicked them out or we clipped their wings. It's easy to have a great team when you have the right players. And we're going to take a few moments if you've got some questions, but I want to close with one kind of illustration of, that sums up all of this and adds one more piece. At North Coast... I've just been so blessed. The first three years were horrific. Nancy and I still call them the dark years. Uh, and then from then on, it's pretty much been, this is a joke. How in the world did this happen? Uh, but I want to tell you part of the reason is, is not just God's kindness, not just his favor, not just his anointing, but in his anointing, his favor, and all those things, it's the team that's been put together. These things have been very important, but there's one other piece. And it was something I didn't get out of the Bible. It's something my first two mentors in ministry did to me. And I just thought that's how you do ministry. So I was blessed. I didn't know there was another way. Are any of you familiar with uh, Russian nesting dolls? Okay, you know what those are. They're, you could take any Russian nesting doll and you could just crunch it in your hand, right? They're, not, they're made out of very light wood or whatever. So what most of us do when we build a team so we can get a little bit stronger, we get smaller dolls. We get a little smaller one, a little smaller one, a little smaller one. We hire people to make our job easier rather than the leverage of ministry and make it bigger, right? Uh, and so we get smaller nesting dolls, smaller and smaller. And you know what? You get stronger. You're not as easily broken when you got six or seven underneath you. But if you want to grow the ministry, you're going to get bigger dolls. And you get four or five bigger dolls, yep, you'll still be stronger, not easy to break. But the ministry will leverage. So I, I just want you to think about the time. You know, we've been talking about building a team, but what type of players are you looking for? Are you looking for people who make your life easier, or are you looking for people who make your ministry larger? When I came, they had a little part-time assistant. Uh, and then when that person moved, I was looking, when we were looking for our first hire, like most church plants, you only got so much money. And then it dawned on me. Instead of hiring, a, they called them secretaries back then, instead of hiring a secretary, I could take that money, add it to who I was looking for as a second person, and get a big L leader, a nesting doll that was bigger than me in some areas. Now, here's what that meant. I had to get my own lunch. And then Nancy and I had to, like, stuff the bulletins. I'd make that trade all day long. Because I got somebody who helped me build the church. 
And my bet is in many of your situations, when it's coming to hire that first staff, the next staff, whatever, what we're looking for is people to make our life easier rather than make the kingdom bigger. You can get your own lunch. It's not below you to stuff envelopes. To this day, and this is description, not prescription. Every situation is different. But to this day, I have an assistant who works from 9 to 2, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But our growth group ministry, which is the hub of our ministry, these small groups, I think they have five full-time assistants. See, we've built our team for our mission, not for our comfort. And you want to look behind and say, wow, Lord, you used me for the mission. You will have built it for the mission. You will not have built it for your comfort. So let me open it up if you got, we got a few minutes uh, for some questions. Just shout them loud and I'll repeat them since they're recording this. Yeah, way in the back. Um, the principles you're talking about here are really Oh, good. I guess they got a mic for you. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the principles you're talking about here are really good for a, uh, a church plant. It's universal being able to use in, a, in an established church. But how do you go about implementing like the, the principle you talked about with um, people feeling the tenure, they've been in a position forever. How do you, how do you go about... Making sure that shotgun doesn't last till they die? Well, a, a specific example, you've got people that have been teaching a specific class for 30 years, and you're in an established church that's you know, 140 years old. How do, you, uh, how do you reach into that situation? Okay, and, that's a different thing, because uh, successor pastors and founder-builder pastors have two different paths, yeah. okay? Uh, for instance, let me real quickly give you, when it comes to vision, if you're a founder-builder, uh, you preach the vision, which draws to you people who share it, and then you do it. If you're a successor pastor, never preach the vision. Because if you do, you're just arming all your opponents so they can sabotage it. You do the vision. Because corporate culture, DNA, is simply the history of how we do things around here. So that would be a difference. Now, when it comes to the other, is uh, when you've got people who are steeped in the past, you want to honor the past while you create the future. You don't kick out the past. So this is very tertiary and, and short, but I always tell successor pastors, don't get angry at the people whose shoulders you were standing on. And don't try to put new wine in old wineskins. Make it a both-and ministry. It might be a second service. It might be alongside. You might build small groups here while you let Sunday school classes die. Or There's a million ways to do that, but that's the principle that's very different, successor. Yes, over here. Uh, thank you for that. Very rich. Question I have, you mentioned flexible people skills and real critical people. Uh, I happen to have lots of those people around us, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with them other than say, you know, find another place. Well, first of all, you have to be willing to let people go, right? Right. It's divine subtraction. We're always afraid to let people go, where the Bible says, especially a factitious person, warn them once, warn them twice, then they're gone. What we do is warn them once, warn them twice, warn, warn them 500 times, 600 times, but I'm going to give you a real practical bit of advice. Um, someone gave me. Uh, I had a um, worship pastor uh, in the very early days, a lay person, but that was, he was leading all worship, and uh, somehow he knew everything everybody didn't like about what I was doing. Do any of you have that guy in your church? Okay. Uh, I'm going to call him Norm because his name was Norm. Uh, <laughs> 
And every time I'd hang up from a 10-minute conversation with Norm that felt like a half hour, I'm like, Jesus, would you solve this problem? (laughs) But I never had the guts to get rid of him because I was afraid of the collateral damage. We'd have karaoke. We're just a tiny little new church plant. Finally, one guy told me, have the guts to do it. And then here's what you do. Because these people almost, almost always say this, and Norm said it. What they say is, I just don't know if I fit here anymore. Right? Some version of, maybe I just ought to move on. Well, Jesus has just answered your stinking (laughs) prayer. But what do we do? We go into pastor mode. Oh, no, no, no. We can work this out. We can work this out. I must have done that 15 times with Norm. What I needed to do and have learned to do since is when Norm says that, say, yeah, you're right. Take the keys and put them in my pocket and then love on him like crazy. We actually have some people still in our church that we've had to do that to when I learned this proper thing. So the first thing is when they say it's maybe time to go, and you and Jesus have been talking about it, agree with them. And the second thing is your collateral damage, quit worrying about it. It's nowhere near as bad as you think. Because guess what? We literally had karaoke for the next month. It was horrible. And then we had the worst pianist for another three months. But here's what we lost, the poison of disunity. And I found out in the rearview mirror that karaoke and a really lame piano player were far better than poison. Okay? And that's what you're all going to find. We're always afraid. By the way, part of the crowd of damage was all these people Norm is talking to are going to leave. None did. They never do. So, yeah. Got one here and then. Um, you kind of answered a little bit of a question I was going to ask. Like, you mentioned the sandbox earlier. What if you have people who are uh, okay in the sandbox, but they are always late to it? Or, because <laughs> 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 me as a leader, look. Me, I love it. Me as a leader, me as a leader have other young men that, that I pretty much disciple in the sense that they have great character in, in a lot of things, but... It's kind of like when it comes time for to show, or when it's time to do something, you can't find people, and you don't want to absolutely just like, hey, I can't use you, I can't. Okay. You know, they got good giftings and stuff, but great. How do you set up? Like, I would separate two things. I would try to figure out what is a fatal flaw and what is an annoyance. Because like, if you're in an on time, hey, I'm right here. It says eight. It's seven fifty nine. I'm here. And somebody else is on relational time, not linear time, and it's not really hurting the ministry, it's an annoyance. I take that as my opportunity to try to teach into them, but also for me to grow in bearing with one another. And then there's those people who, just to pick your timing issue, know it hurts other people. And at that point, I draw a line in the sand and I say, you get to choose. You know, this is what it takes to be here, and if you can't be here on time, then you're going to lose. But there's a big distinction between what annoys me, which is my growth opportunity, and what hurts our ministry, which is I have to stand up to. I guess what I also uh, deal with when it comes to the timing, like when you have a lack of personnel to actually serve, and then sometimes you fall into that spot like, well, you know, I kind of do need you, even though, you know, you really shouldn't be on the team. Like you mentioned well, I, I would never take somebody whose character means they shouldn't be on the team. But I would take the players I have. 
You know, uh, uh, Philadelphia in the NBA, they called trust the process. They had a terrible team for a number of years. Well, you still got to have players, okay? But I won't have poison players, but yeah, at some point. But that's another reason why I don't like to give people titles and roles. Uh, I give them tasks. And then you can move on and have someone else do the task. Uh, But yeah, sometimes you just got to settle for what you got. There was a question here. Yeah, so I was wondering uh, if you've ever uh, done crisis training, like scenario-based training, and like in in business sometimes we uh, we play out operational scenarios yeah. where this thing happens or that thing happens. Is it is it a wise thing to say, hey, um, what would happen if you're sitting around with your your staff or your team? You're like, hey, Johnny is having an affair. How are we going to handle that? Like how important is that or how can that be a, a well i don't think that's vital exercise. and i don't think it's bad i think that's one other option of dealing with these kind of things uh in 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 uh am i still on there we go in in stiggy teams i actually put a chapter in there about justice family so that the pastors and groups that read that book would have at least talked about it like i hadn't so the idea of playing some scenarios like oh yeah that's a good option i don't see anything wrong with it or it particularly being better, it's just one of many possible ways to do it. Okay? Larry? Let's uh, take uh, one, one, two more and then we're done, right? Larry, okay. just a question. Best practices, healthy way to lead when your family's a part of your team? When, like, so your family ministry? Yeah, well, no, I'm sorry. You've got family members on your lead team launching. And you've well, got, I think probably blend, the best, blended with here's other. the most important thing to hear, not my best practices. The most important thing is your best practice is going to be, ter- be, be, be determined by the personality of who those family members have are. For instance, some people have a high-maintenance spouse, a low-maintenance spouse. Others have one where, hey, I could talk about ministry all day long, and the other's going like, hey, we need a break from it. Are any of you like me? I had a great marriage until Nancy and I went to the marriage conference. Because <laughs> everybody had a recipe. And here's what I want to tell you. I'll close with this. And then other questions, I'll try to take a moment or two offline. But here's the thing with all of your ministry. Judge the fruit, not the watering schedule. And it's true with your family as well. Too many people have recipes. And if the spouse is loving it, keep doing it. If they're not, change the watering schedule. That's how I raise my kids. That's how I do my marriage. That's how I run the church. It's all about the fruit. And if the fruit's no good, I Google watering schedule. But when the fruit's good, I don't care whether you like my recipe or not. The fruit's good. Hey, thanks. It was great being with you.